This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Big Think is a kind of online think tank. Powerful ideas from some of the world's most creative thinkers distilled into small, shareable doses. The Think Again podcast remixes this formula. The producers pick surprise idea clips from over 10,000 of them in our archives. My guests and I watch them and discuss. From there, the conversation goes wherever it goes. I'm very, very happy today to be here with Jace Clayton, also known as DJ Rupture. He has spun music all over the world in every imaginable kind of venue, including not only big arenas, but also at one point a refrigerated truck, and has released several critically acclaimed albums. He's also one of the most gifted writers about musical culture that I've ever read. His book, Uproot, travels in 21st century music and digital culture, digs deep into the back bins of hyper-local musical traditions and zooms out to take in the whole shifting global landscape. Welcome to Think Again, Jason. Hello, thank you. All right, first of all, your book, like, I don't want to sort of gush meaninglessly, but your, <laughs> your book was wonderful. It's beautifully written. It was an incredibly fascinating survey of, uh, I guess, what, what digital has done to musical culture, but through your very specific lens. Mm -hmm. I really, really enjoyed it. Okay, well, thank you. I, I want to start with the auto-tune section, mm -hmm, you know, sure. and, then, and then we'll radiate out from there. So you have, you have a whole chapter kind of about auto-tune, which I found really interesting. I mean, just literally, I don't know, three weeks ago, maybe, I was talking to my eight-year-old son and kind of dissing auto-tune <laughs> yes. and how it's ubiquitous and it's all over pop music and it's super annoying and whatever. And then um, Bon Iver's new album came mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. There's a track on there called yeah. Creeks, which is heavily auto-tuned. Mm -hmm. And I think it's kind of genius what he does with autotune. Have, have you Excellent. by any chance heard that? No, I haven't. Okay. I've had a chance. But I just like, oh my God, he's using it as an, an instrument. So, yep. all right. Well, what I wanted to say though is like you, you go on this interesting journey. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about it, trying to figure out Berber music within the Berber culture mm -hmm. in Morocco mm -hmm. uses autotune nowadays. Certain types of Berber music use yep. autotune heavily. Could you talk a little bit about kind of that detective story there? Yeah, yeah. So it actually started in the early 2000s. I was living in Barcelona. Okay. And then I would hear this wild sounds, you know, and all sorts of, you know, like um, rock and music there. And this was before I even knew it was auto-tune. And I was just kind of like, this is kind of crazy and wild and in like an otherwise pretty folky music. Um, 
And then I just slowly watched its popularity grow. Then a few years later, T-Pain came out, and it's like, oh, okay, this is auto-tune, and it exploded. But then it always kept, I kept thinking to myself, how come it was there so early in this pretty like rural kind of remote music? Right. And then I would check in every now and then, you know, go to the stores and whatnot, and it would still be there, omnipresent in like certain types of pop music. And in some cases, it's music that doesn't have too many heavy electronic elements mm -hmm. otherwise, right? It's Exactly. can be fairly traditional otherwise. Yeah, yeah, I found this one sort of style where it's just a guy playing kind of like a guitar instrument, a string instrument, hand percussion, and then the vocals have full auto-tune. Right. So it's just like, what is going on? Uh, and that was the genesis for the chapter. I'm like, well, why don't I try and find out what's going on? Yeah. You know, and think about how this technology, which emanates out of California, ends up being so popular in a place so far removed from where it was made. And you have a really interesting kind of... Um, you know, you come to an interesting conclusion about the it as a kind of a musical veil of Islam at some mm -hmm. point. You talk mm -hmm. about the fact that it's it, it appears heavily on female vocal tracks. Yep. Can you talk a little bit about yeah, that? Because sure. it's really, really interesting. Yeah, and then I started realizing it specifically in Berber culture, there's this uh, idea, kind of a stereotype idea that like the true woman has this piercing clarion call voice that can shout out across a mountainside. And you know, and then she not only that she speaks really pure Berber. She doesn't like she doesn't speak Arabic. And so this idea of the mountain woman, remote, pure, the sort of uplift. And then my thinking is that autotune amplifies that. It takes a right. piercing voice and makes it even more piercing and electronic and unique, but it makes it stand out more. Right. So it links up with these sort of age-old kind of stereotypes of the sort of pure woman, and ends up and does what the veil does. So this idea of it's both covering the natural beauty and also kind of like, you know, accentuating it in this sort of crazy electronic way at the same time. Right, sort of like also removes and protects mm -hmm. the woman in a way from the listener. Like yes. she's, she's in a separate space. Yes. I wondered if you could read a section. This is, this is from that chapter. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just describing your thoughts as you're sitting in a music studio in okay. Morocco. Yep. And I, the reason I'm asking you to read it is just because I think it's a really nice example of kind of the writing and the observations in this book. Mm -hmm. You know, it just really sets okay. a nice atmosphere. Great. It's from there oh, nice. to there. Sure, yeah. yeah. Almarif's studio lies behind a nondescript door on the plaza's edge. I'm here to get grounded. Some studios transmit the clinical time is money tang of a doctor's office. Others try to make you feel at ease. Almarif is one of the good ones. An assistant ushers us into the front salon. The openness of Moroccan interior space makes it a joy to wait in. Firm, long, low, rectangular cushions line the walls. These possibility-rich slabs of furniture can easily seat a dozen people or serve as beds for a handful. A television fastened to the wall plays old Japanese anime. Cartoon people bounce and ripple lysergically, their bodies as flexible and indestructible as folk songs. The assistant returns with what must be our fourth or fifth sweet mint tea of the day. The welcoming offer of tea means more than the drink itself, particularly for newcomers such as me. I abstractedly cradle my cup, wondering how this country does not suffer from diabetes given the glacier-sized chunks of sugar that everyone stirs into their drinks. In lax pastry shops, bees or wasps swarm glazed post-colonial croissants, as addicted to sweeteners as we are. I take another sip. If, like cats, we humans couldn't taste sugar, then eating cookies would be punishment. And, lacking reasons for New World sugarcane plantations, the whole history of slavery would have come out differently 
at least a nudge less bitter. I drain my cup. That's really, I mean, what I like about that is that final observation where, you know, you just happen to be sitting there drinking mm -hmm. tea and you're, and it, and it connects to this whole, the, the global history of slavery. And I feel like that's true throughout the book mm -hmm. that you go into these kind of hyper-local environments, but things then branch yeah. off and resonate from there and connect yeah. globally. Yeah, that's an important part of it for sure. You know, I was trying to figure out, initially when I was reading the book, I'm thinking, okay, you're sort of a digital optimist. I mean, you're mm. looking at this landscape mm -hmm. and you're like, okay, all this stuff that happens, every new change that happens, creates new tools that, especially for the underground, like people yeah. screw with and do with what they want and mm -hmm. make something new and that's, that's good. At the same time, it seems like you're a clear-eyed realist as well about a lot about the commercial end of things. Mm -hmm. You know, like you you talk about Red Bull sponsoring music, and yeah. but that even that is a very ambivalent yes. thing, right? <laughs> yes. I yes. mean, we, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about your kind of sure. your perspective there. Like. Yeah. No, I think you you kind of nailed it because yeah, on the one hand, so much of what I'm excited by is, as a musician and a listener is you know, kids using and misusing new digital tools right. in the way that enables new channels of expression and communication, and that's great. But there's always a flip side where I'm saying, oh wow, I also understand how the software sort of channel people in certain directions right. and make certain types of musical uh, creativity harder to manifest and harder to share with people. And that's really tricky. And so for me, I'm like, by really kind of zooming in deep to these very specific moments, I can get at the kind of the nuances of what's happening. Right. And I carry that same approach over to, yeah, discussion of, you know, things, stuff like Red Bull and corporate funding and advertising and sponsorship. And because I was like, part of what makes it, part of what's different about being a, you know, cultural producer today is that we're so, it's in, in bed culture. It's, right. It's, uh, whereas 15 years ago, the whole landscape was different, what it meant to be a DIY artist. Um, right. And so I was like, well, I'm just going to sort of put all my cards on the table and explain my experiences and just try and being as, as honest as possible about that and not just chasing the money and saying, oh, but will, will musicians be able to make money off streaming? But no, thinking about what that means at the moment of creation, at the moment of you know, trying to put on a tour or just connect with people who are, you know, are interested in your sound. Yeah, I mean, I think, I feel like I am feeling a bit cynical these days mm -hmm. with respect to what you do talk about in the book mm -hmm. in terms of the kind of platformization of everything, you know, yes. and how, you know, everything is kind of on lockdown, you know, mm -hmm. every, like Spotify, you know, that, and it doesn't yeah. mean that the music doesn't exist el elsewhere, yes. but as far as distribution, it oh, just yeah. seems to be on lockdown pretty much. And it feels like we're in some kind of, Terry Gilliam-esque dystopia. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do you disagree? I no, I completely agree because okay. as you know, so much of my music as a DJ, it's you know, bootleg mixes, sort of unofficial mixtapes, that sort of thing. Right. And so when I go on the streaming services, I was like, wow, I'm being I'm being edited out of the historical record. You know, because the mixes that can't be posted on YouTube, that will be taken down from SoundCloud, that right. can't make it to Spotify. And I was like, Yeah, you're on Spotify, uh, but it's just like four or five albums yeah, or whatever yeah, that I guess have samples that are cleared or Exactly. Yeah. So it's not, to me, I'm, it's not a good focus, not a good picture. And so, and so that, it's like, it, it's, you know, it's, personally it's quite troubling. You know? yeah, and yeah. So, and, but then I start thinking about all the different types of informal music and what, this, what the platformization does when it's the, the sort of commercial framework that lets it enter into the historical record like that. Right. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah, that's that. That's the curation. Right. Mm -hmm. That determines what, mm -hmm. in a way, what gets heard, at least on a yeah. on a big scale. But then again, 
the DIY stuff was really only ever mostly mm -hmm. being heard on a local scale mm -hmm. anyway, yep. except with, you know, with the exception maybe of Fugazi that you talk about in the yep. book and some others. All right, I'm, I, here's the last thing before we get to the surprise conversations. <laughs> okay, I want, um, uh, I, and this is like, I'm putting you in the role of musical therapist. Mm. So there was an Onion article a number of years ago that I, that I shared around that I thought was really funny. Um, the headline was, Lifelong love affair with music ends at 30. <laughs> All right. <Great>. And <laughs> so I'm in the predicament, I'm 43 years old, I'm in a predicament that a lot of people I know my age are, which is that like if I'm si sitting down to like DJ as it were for myself, yep. you know, I'm going back to like basically a pretty narrow band of stuff that I was really into in yes. the 90s. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like Comfort that's, foods. Yeah, I guess, I guess. And and so for new music, like I'll go to, and, and it, again, it's the platformization of everything. I'll go to Metacritic, for okay. example, mm -hmm. right? And be like, all right, what's coming out? Because mm -hmm. I don't know where else to go. Yes. I mean, you are yep. in your book, you're like diving into crazy obscure corners to find music. And I think that's totally awesome. Mm -hmm. I feel like I don't have time to do that. Yeah, uh, maybe that's not true, but <laughs> that's how I feel. So, uh, like, you know, and then I'll listen to some new thing for like five minutes or whatever, mm -hmm. but it kind of doesn't take. Mm -hmm. I wonder, like, mm. you know, aside from like letting Spotify choose your playlist, yes. which they're now doing algorithmically, <laughs> is there a solution or is it, do you simply have to do the legwork and just get the hell out there and dig mm. stuff up? Like, you know. Yeah, I mean, I always fall <laughs> back on. Like when in doubt, I ask friends. You know, mm -hmm. I'm like people like help me out here. You know, mm -hmm. because actually, it's funny with the writing of the book, my listening dropped. <laughs> I oh, was yeah. like, I can't listen, and, and then I would be starved. Um, and by the way, I'll say that I listened throughout the book. Mm -hmm. I did bring up many of those oh, okay. artists you talked about on Spotify, yeah. including obscure oh, okay. Berber folks and whatever, Excellent. and listened to them. Yeah, you know, so there so. are moments. That's, yeah, yeah. that's good to hear. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but for me, even for me, it's really difficult. Sometimes I'd be like, oh, there's a radio show that I like, but that can be kind of complicated too to, to, to find right. what you're interested in. To, and especially because we're dealing with surprise. Like, how do you, how do you stay surprised and right. get the unknown? And so that's why, you know, oftentimes I'll going to see live music will be was one way for me mm -hmm. to get that surprise. But there's you, no magic bullet. There's no magic bullet. <laughs> yeah. And even, you know, even great music writers, I'm like, I just won't always uh, agree with their taste. Or the really great music writers, you have to write about the sort of the big obvious thing, like what's your take on Taylor Swift? You know, where right. it's harder to champion the, the, the up and coming. That's right. No, that's right. I mean, uh, yeah. And I mean, I think that you talk about that a lot in the book as well. You know, even on even on this podcast, like mm -hmm. even on Big Think, like there is a mandate generally mm -hmm. to get people who are well known mm -hmm. or have done something that is, yes. you know, visible because, yep. you know, it's like if eyeballs are already on something, then mm -hmm. more eyeballs are mm -hmm. likely to come to it, and you know the yep. circle goes round and round. Yes. Like. Yeah. All right. So let's get to the second part where we just have like surprise conversations about okay. things that we didn't expect, all right? Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. I'm um, open. This first one is Bill Burnett on how to brainstorm mm. innovative ideas. And there's a lot of people in the corporate world and elsewhere talking about brainstorming and how you like engineer innovation yes. and a lot of like truth and BS out there. So let's see what mm -hmm. we're getting here. Okay. Yeah. Now, a lot of times people also have trouble with the notion of wild ideas. Why do you have to have crazy ideas? Because you, you know, no one's going to use the idea 
you know, well, what if there was no gravity? How would we solve this problem? And that's one of the prompts I throw. When, when people are stuck, I give them prompts. Like, what if you were an elephant? How would you do this? You know, how, how would you use a mouse if you were an elephant? How would, you, how would you do this if there was no gravity? And they have some crazy, crazy idea. The problem is our brains want to cluster ideas very tightly around some core central thing. And no matter how many times we brainstorm, if we don't change the parameter of that thing, we'll get ideas that are roughly clustered around the same thing. To make these big conceptual leaps, to, to start a new, a new cluster, a new center of, of, of ideas, you really need to kind of break out of your set, out of your box. And the only way to do that is to come up with something that's so stupid, it makes no sense at all. Um, an example we did, we did a sort of an example brainstorm, and this isn't probably the way it worked, but you know, for a while, people were trying to figure out how do you solve poverty in India. And the idea was, well, we'll give money to rich people. They'll, they have companies. They, they'll employ people. There'll be a trickle-down effect, and poor people will eventually get you know, saved. And people have been doing that for a long time, and nobody didn't work. Then a crazy guy named Muhammad, Muhammad Yunus said, what if we give money to people who have nothing? We'll give money to people so poor, they probably can't pay it back. And that's micro-lending. Now, I mean, his idea wasn't to give it to people who can't pay it back, but his, the big shift was, instead of this trickle-down thing, what if we just give this woman $50 and she runs a cell phone service in her village? It was a completely radical idea that came from upending the whole model. So uh, it's things like that where you really need a brand new idea that requires the wild idea to get it started. Uh, and then you can always bring it back and find ways to make it implementable. A lot of what he was saying makes sense because I, you know, I am a fan of, of the wild ideas and that's kind of how I, my brain tends to associate things when I'm thinking about projects, when I'm thinking about what I want to do. And, and there is this thing, it's like for a truly new idea, for real change to happen, it has to like operate by its own rules. You know, he said it has right. to sound like really dumb or crazy and it's, it has to be something wild that can almost be perceived as noise. Mm -hmm. you know, um, and then once you start considering it, like how can that you know be manifested? I really agree. And for me, it's less about just like aiming far from the center. And I think it's more about like with music, listening to very different types of music, which operate by very different rules. Right. And then when all those kind of gather in the same space in my brain as I'm mixing or whatever, then that is kind of what helps me generate connections between the two. Or reading in very like far flung types of things, or having friends, being friends with diff very different types of people. And so in a way, I think, what I think about brainstorming, it's you have to learn to be comfortable outside your comfort zone. Right, right, right. <laughs> so for you, it's a more like organic process of putting mm -hmm. yourself into situations mm -hmm. and then being attuned to those connections when they arise. Exactly. Kind of thing. Yeah. Uh -huh. And also trying to keep you know, my eyes and ears open. It's always like the the sort of full frequency, full bandwidth information mm -hmm. you get from a conversation or a walk down the city street, it's always gonna have these interesting contradictions and in what you expect, there's always gonna be those types of surprises. Right. And so I like to try and to really kind of focus on those details, focus on the moments of surprise and think of, well, what's, this system is more complicated than I thought and sort right. of let that, let that complexity flow into me. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like conformity in a lot of cases comes from, um, I mean, in art anyway, in mm -hmm. a lot of cases comes from money is the root. You know, that yes. basically people are trying to 
there's that anxiety around like mm-hmm. I got to do something I got to mm-hmm. do something right and like yeah. you know got to make something happen whatever and like you know for whatever reason whether they're going after a million dollars or they're just trying to put food on the table yep. you know so you reach around you know what is working elsewhere mm-hmm. kind of thing mm-hmm. yes yeah definitely and that's one of the, like the one of the great things we love about music is the way it's so iterative you know you like that song then there's you'll probably like all many of the songs this artist or that genre right um, and, and often there is a definite commercial, uh, which, which is, you know, as a DJ, as a listener, it's a kind of wonderful. But the true innovators in music that I find most exciting are the people who are almost like, yeah, like a little bit too wild to, to think of. <laughs> it's, not, it's not about what we'll sell, you know. There's a sound inside their head. There's, right. a, there's a technique which they've been learning and they want to hear. Um, and partly, in order to, to reach that, you know, you do need some sort of audience that trusts you to some extent, you right. know? Um, right. Or you need to like go out and create that audience. So it's not just like the sort of wild person creating on their own, but there is, you have to be in a community that appreciates that. So those moments of sort of less commercial spaces where it's not about, hey, we're trying to move units, it's more about like, where, how far can we go with this um, can really drive innovation or sort of change in music. You talk a little bit about how you started, how you got into DJing in mm-hmm. the first place. Could yep. you say a little oh, bit yeah. about that? Yeah, yeah, and actually that was like hearing something. So it was uh, <laughs> a few different things. Like when I was in, I guess, I think it was middle school, somehow early high school. I was a teenager, young teenager. Where did you grow up, by I, the way? Uh, oh, outside of Boston. Outside Boston, of Boston. Massachusetts, oh. yeah. Um, I got it, somehow I ended up, I got my hands in a cassette of Japanese noise music. Yeah. And it's and real noise music, you know. That's just what's that like album? It's called like Eat Shit Eat or shit something. Noise like music. Yeah, yeah okay, it's like right. a bootleg compilation <laughs> from a weird, from like this experimental music distributor in Lowell, Massachusetts, like right near where I lived. The whole thing was totally bizarre, but I got this. I pop it, you know, and I'd listen to music, and then I get this tape. I'm like, let's see what's on it. And then what emerges really is just people yelling, banging on stuff, <laughs> like white noise, you know, and uh, strange electronics. And it blew my mind because. Up until then, I was like, okay, I had some idea of what music was, and then suddenly right. this felt like it was from another galaxy. And I was like, there, not only are they people in Japan making this horrible racket, <laughs> but I'm like, but here I am in Massachusetts and I'm listening to it. You know, I was like, wow. <laughs> what made you buy that? I was looking The name? I, yeah, I was <laughs> looking for, there's this one band done at The Ruins, who was kind of like, okay. whose music I'd heard on the late night college radio. Right. And you know, even that, I was always a digger, so I was like, "Oh, how can I get music by the Ruins?" And and they were by far the most normal thing in the cassette. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Right. 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 So then that leads to DJing. Yeah, and that's like that's to me that was this message of you can participate. You know, it doesn't have to be polished. It doesn't. You don't need to have piano lessons. It's like it's totally open. And then the thing that really made me become a DJ was actually going out dancing in Boston after hours clubs, and they're playing you know house music and techno. And then at one point they started playing Jungle, drum and bass from the right. UK. And it was like, you know, it's an hour long session each night, 45 minutes. And that was, that was really the shock of the new. You know, I'm like, oh, it's sped up break beats. There's all this incredible bass lines. It's referencing reggae and hip hop and techno, but it's very futuristic. Right. It just felt like songs and time eras stacked up on top of each other and exuberant. So it lit you up like, Spiritually, but also intellectually, obviously. You were yeah. aware of all that yeah. history and culture going in. Exactly. And it, yeah, yeah, and the mind-body was a dissolve. It was great to dance to, but then you could think about, oh, I have that sample, and how are they making these complicated beats that are so physical at the same time? And, and Jungle was an example of, you know, it was pirate radio broadcasts in London and little clubs and small sound systems all kind of networked together and listening to each other and evolving the sound in a very quick way. Right. And then by the time it reached, you know, 
far-flung Boston, it was this sort of like very, very evolved alien form, you know, so it just lands in the middle of us and explodes my brain. Um, <laughs> <laughs> whereas maybe if you're in London going every week, you would see how it was a whole community, a kind of ecosystem of creative people and dancers and DJs and all of this. It wouldn't seem as remarkable maybe in its own organic setting mm -hmm. or something. Yes, yeah. I mean, actually, but even then London, they knew, they knew it was amazing. Now, yeah. now that I think about it, they knew it was awesome. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and also fragile, you know, for those, it was for like two or three years, it was just the most kinetic and surprising music in the world and then it sort of stabilized a bit and then the energy went elsewhere you know the music became less adventurous right but in those moments it was wow it's really interesting I think about my own kind of like musical education um, self-education whatever mm -hmm. I mean probably like a lot of people it had to do with identity mm. more than yep. the music or both as much about identity as it was about the music like so my musical awakening is probably like the point at which I stopped you know, taping Phil Collins off uh -huh. my boombox, yeah. if that uh -huh. dates me, is where, you know, I start, like, I somehow become aware of British music. Mm -hmm. I become aware of, mm -hmm. like, punk and mm -hmm. goth. Mm -hmm. I start listening to The Smiths, The Cure, yeah. you know, and so that then more, that's yeah. morphs into, like, a whole alternative identity, whatever. Yes. Yep. And those musicians lead to other places. And, I mean, over the years, other stuff has come in, hip-hop and whatever, but, like, the vast majority was like me just first trying to like educate myself. Mm -hmm. Let me hear all that. Let me hear Jimi Hendrix. Let me hear all that. Yep. What is all this stuff everyone's talking about? But then, yeah, like, mm -hmm. let me be this thing. Yes. You know? Yeah. 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 It's a strong For form. you, it's different. Like, you're, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, it is. And I think in part it was growing up within striking distance of Boston area college radios. Uh -huh. So it was, you know, which were very adventuresome and what they would play late at night. And right. I would just sort of, and often, you know, DJs presenting things like this is what this is right but so that's the situation where you're hearing lots of new music but it's also it's radio so it's just washing through oh your that makes sense yeah because you got Harvard and you got you got probably smart yeah. stations yeah. around there yeah, yeah. Really, some really smart stations and then but being far enough from Boston where it's like it's still like boring suburbs where no music shows happen <laughs> <laughs> right 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 so it's sort of like there was no scene where I lived um, that's why I was listening to the radio but so from very early on it was for me it was just kind of like sonic exploration and opening up it was like windows into the world was how I was thinking about this gotcha, music. Gotcha. Okay, well, I guess on the tip of innovation, before we move on to the next one, um, the, the thing you've, you've been working on, or you've worked on this thing recently called Sufi plugins. Sufi, yes. Maybe you should talk a little more about it than I. I mean, essentially, mm -hmm. it's virtual instruments, but they're Trickster-ish in a way. Yes. Like, yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a, it's a suite of music making, software tools, virtual instruments. Um, but definitely tricksterish. And at first, I came up with the idea. Uh, you know, I was living in Barcelona, as I mentioned, and you know, had a collaborative project with a Moroccan violinist. And right. I started thinking, oh, when I open up my music software, it defaults to you know C major, 120 beats per minute, um, a four-four time signature. Right. And I was like, yeah. And I and I realized I'm like, I can't even sort of. It's very difficult to tune the software to some of these. Uh, North African scales. Semitones. Yeah, exactly. Right. Semitones that give some like Arabic music its distinctive pitches. Or the drum machines weren't used to sort of polyrhythms. Um, and so I started looking at all the kind of limitations built into the software. And then it reached a point where I was like, oh, I, you know, I can work with a coder and like put together some of these ideas and make tools for myself to use. Right. And I could work with Abdel and do all. And, but then I, I, it occurred to me, I'm like, you know, if I, rather than just making these for me, what if I turn them into a kind of a, a public? thing that I can share with people yeah and I'm like and they'll be free I'm like but there'll be a twist you know so uh, the interface for all of these plugins which you know 
um, is written in all in Berber, this beautiful right. wild script. Um, when you roll the mouse over a button or a knob, um, instead of a literal tooltip popping up, like reverb or distortion or pitch, it's a fragment of Sufi poetry right. from 13th century Persia on down to today. And then the tools themselves, you know, this idea is I had was, I'm gonna make them with my presets. You know, so there's four different synthesizers, but they're all hardwired to North African and Arabic scales. Right. So you can open it up and play an Um Kulthum Egyptian song perfectly, but you know, you can't go and play the, you know, the latest whatever. Like so you are, <laughs> you know, you're locking people into your ecosystem, but it's a very different one from the assumptions that are embedded in Precisely. the tools they usually Precisely. use. Precisely. And it was kind of like, it's like a, like a gift and a provocation. And at a very basic level, I'm like, you know, of course, most of the people who download this will probably have no idea what it says, um, but I'm encouraging people to think with their ears and to explore the software. I love that. I mean, I, you know, I love that because, you know, it seems to me that professionalism mm -hmm. often shuts people mm -hmm. out, you know, mm -hmm. the, and, and uh, you know, and I mean, this is kind of obvious. This is the case with all of DJ and remix culture or whatever is the idea that people should be able to just pick it up and, and kind of mm -hmm. make music. But that's nice. Like I, you know, I just feel like so many of the tools that exist are highly specialized, hyper specialized, very daunting. Yes. But with the embedded assumption that you ought to be able to figure out, mm -hmm. you ought to know what to do with them. You know. <laughs> yes. Yours goes against that. Yeah. 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 So it's it's very it's, it's like equally confusing to many people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, it is. It is. It's it's wanting it to be open and wanting to. I mean, it's playing with the ideas of mystification and demystification of electronic music making. Even. Right, um, right. But it's definitely the situation where, yeah, you drag it in, open up, and you'll have cool sounds in a few minutes, you know. Right, right. Cool. Shall we, shall we see what the, yeah. speaking of surprise, let's Great. see what the next surprise clip is that we have. This says, rethinking social networking. So thus oh. far, we're pretty... We're pretty tame. We're kind of in your roughly in the <laughs> yes. landscape you deal with in the in the book. This is Jonathan Harris, okay. who's a visual artist, mm. who I think created Cowbird, which was a kind of alternative social network oh, meant, wow, okay. meant to undermine some of the assumptions of social networking, as I recall. I really see Twitter and Facebook to a slightly lesser extent, but really Twitter, as um, routing devices for human attention. They're very good at that. They're effectively providing our species with a common nervous system which we can use to transmit signals to each other. And so when there's something that uh, is a very um, provocative or disturbing signal, or a very beautiful signal, it's a, it's a great system to get a lot of humans' attention directed at that thing very, very quickly. And that can actually happen in a matter of moments now, or minutes. So as routing devices, Twitter and Facebook are, are incredibly effective, and I think they do that very elegantly. I think as self-expressive mediums, they're less elegant. And I actually don't think they're designed to be self-expressive mediums in the same way that a blank piece of paper and a pen is designed to be a self-expressive medium. And so I had noticed a few trends happening in online culture in general, but also just in culture more generally over the last few years. And the first one is compression. One thing we've seen actually predating the web, but accentuated with the web, is the compressing and shortening and speeding up of communication. So you can go back to like letter writing, which gave way to 
uh, eventually telephone calls, which then gave way to faxes, which then gave way to emails, which then gave way to uh, text messages and chats and tweets. And each successive level gets like more and more compressed and shorter and faster. And um, we're sort of like hovering at the tweet right now. And it was unclear to me that there's another level of compression after that. There maybe is one more, like maybe we start grunting at each other or something. But uh, we've pretty much hit a kind of terminal velocity, I think, uh, in terms of how fast communication can go. It's funny, the thing that stuck with, I mean, of course, I agree with the uh, Twitter, like Facebook as reading devices, zing, 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 information, not as expressive platforms, yes. Um, but it's interesting, this talk of compression, like thinking about person-to-person mm. -person communication is getting shorter and faster. I used to joke like the sort of Russian novelist edition of Twitter. It's like say what you think and 140,000 words or less <laughs> or, or more. Right. 140,000 words or more. Uh -huh. um, and so I do, I guess I do wonder about that. I kind of, I'm not sure I buy it to be honest about the compression thing because so much of it, I guess part of my, when I think about things like Twitter and texting friends, it's just like oral cultures manifesting in digital, digital realms. Right. No, yeah, I mean, first of all, right. I mean, first of all, you can go back and forth forever on Twitter mm. if you want to, yes. and people do. Yep. You get in yep. long conversations. Mm -hmm. And there's something about even like, actually, with the Twitter, they don't like, you know, you make Twitter friends, you meet people on Twitter, find them in real life, and sometimes you find these residences, and then suddenly, you know, you're having a cup, cup of coffee with some, someone. And so, and, you know, this idea that, where it's like, can communication get any faster? I'm like, well, actually, it could definitely get faster. You know, it's like Line, that social network, it's like big in Southeast Asia and Japan. Mm -mm. It's mostly image only. Okay. Um, and you can like buy complicated images, but there's this whole thing, a friend of mine lives in Thailand, and he's like, yeah, people will like arrange for dinner or drinks and everything with only images. Oh, wow. It's, it's like, it's, so it's full on. I've seen some experiments <laughs> of like, sort of like emoji novels and yes. stuff. I can't make heads or tails yeah. of them. But yeah, I'm yeah. like, what? But you know, it's like hieroglyphics, essentially. You know. So I guess I think, it, yeah, it's interesting to think of like what would mm -hmm. a faster, I mean, while I, I resist this idea that Twitter's compression, I'm thinking of what is the, the next platform, you know? That, you know, there was, I think there were people talking about like nudging at one point, mm, you know, this was a thing okay. like your friend huh. poked you oh, or yes. whatever, or, yes. you know, and then, <laughs> and then there, there's, I think there are some of these social networking apps that just do that. It's like, uh -huh. you know, wink, you yeah. know, or whatever, yep. okay. Yeah, I feel like you get out of these things what you can get out mm -hmm. of them, and mm -hmm. then you make space for the rest elsewhere. Yes. Like, I mean, on Twitter, and, and, and the other thing about compression, like, okay, Twitter limits us to 140 mm -hmm. characters, yeah. but then you have, like, Teju Cole, yeah. you have Joyce Carol Oates, mm -hmm. you have Margaret Atwood, you have people doing really smart, like, mm -hmm. taking that form mm -hmm. and saying, okay, yep. so this is like a poetic stricture, you know, yes. it's like a sonnet, mm -hmm. I'm stuck with 140 characters, Yep. what can I do, you know? I remember last week when uh, Elena Ferrante was sort of outed, the best thing I read was a person who had like, it was like a one in, numbered tweets, one through 10, just sort of like breaking it down, comparing it to NewsGuard, talking about like the gendered reception of this, the autobiography and all this. And I was like, right. totally brilliant. 10 tweets, whew, that was it. I didn't need to think piece to, to, yeah. to experience it. I was like, it was so, it was so lucid. Um, you have an interesting take on compression in, um, in your book, mm -hmm. you, again, that book is Uproot, uh, <laughs> travels 21st, uh, sorry, travels in 21st century music and digital culture. And I repeat it, not just to plug it, but because it is awesome, really awesome. Um, you talk about MP3s, right, mm -hmm. which music snobs kind of sniff at. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and actually, the I don't, I don't know, 128 kilobit oh, yes. bytes yep. or whatever, yeah, yep. which is a sort of a, not the highest resolution MP3. Mm -hmm. And how that's there are good things about that. You liked it, right? Yes, because. Yep. Yeah, for me, like the sort of low-resolution MP3, that means it's easily shareable. That means it's right. traveled. And even sometimes when you can hear it, like a sort of digital crunchiness to the MP3, which means they've, a few people have squished it and compressed it, I'm like, that is the marker of travel and circulation in a digital environment. And what that means is that that song, that remix, that whatever, is popular and it's active. It's right. talking alive. to people and, yeah, alive and moving around. And I'm like, and that's a great thing. You know, not everybody can have the vinyl record, the heavyweight vinyl, and this audiophile stereo system. It's like, no, that's that's kind of you know, it it can be great to listen to, but it pulls towards a sort of elitist, out of range, the grubby, messy MP3 <laughs> MP3 low resolution world. Uh, it actually sort of celebrates the ways in which music moves around. Do you think that there's a an analogy in the kind of divide between the audio? file snob mm -hmm. and and that perspective that you're sharing mm -hmm. and the arguments that happen between like tr lovers of the traditional book the mm -hmm. physical book mm -hmm. versus that and say you know a, a kindle that yeah. kind of thing yeah because it's funny with the kindle actually you know like I'm, kindles are great whatever sequential it's it, you just it's just a way it's like a text delivery system right um, and so i'm very I'm very pro that. And writing a book actually had me thinking, I'm like, well, what's, like, what can you do with this long form that you can't do in an essay, you know, or in a, or in a series of tweets, you know, right. or even like a longer magazine article. And then I was like, oh, well, there are all sorts of things you can do. Like, let's try and explore those. Um, and, but so as a, yeah. I mean, the reason, no, the reason I thought about that was just because, like, I got in, uh, you know, a pretty heated argument at one mm -hmm. point a few years back with somebody about, where I was basically saying, like, look, I love literature as much as you do to this other person, you know, highly educated, you know, lover mm -hmm. of literature. And I'm like, I, you, like, I'll go toe to toe with you on book loving, <laughs> yeah. right? But if it's a difference between carrying around 10,000 books to every oh, apartment yeah. I move to oh, yes. and having to <laughs> shelve them, or just having them immediately available, the words are the words. And this person yeah. was like, no, it's oh, wow. the smell, it's the feel, mm -hmm. it's the da 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 yeah. you know? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I play devil's advocate in those situations. Like, you don't love literature, you love the smell of the feel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You love paper. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, but I guess, you know, audio purists would argue mm. that, like, that is the music. Like, you yes. are losing, you yep. know, you're losing texture and you're losing mm -hmm. complexity, you know, or whatever. That, that the, the high-end audio, yep. that's part of the music, you know? Yeah, and I was, it's funny, because as, like, whenever I DJ out, I'm using the highest resolution files I can get. Sure. Lossless and all of this good, good quality records. Mm. Um, but... My, my, I, I will defend low bitrate MP3s to the end <laughs> um, because in a way they, they almost exemplify the, the, that the beautiful stuff in music is never in the hi-fi system. It's always in this sort of ineffable something. You're like, oh, just play that song. doesn't matter if it's over laptop speakers or right. tiny earbuds. It will still move you and still have that emotional resonance. That's right. You know what that made me think of, just total free association? I've traveled in Turkey a fair amount, and when you mm -hmm. get, especially when you get out of Istanbul, mm -hmm. the call to prayer, the ezan, oh, yeah. and you talk about this in your book as well. You know, you, you that that the call to prayer fi figures in, but like, you know, the speakers okay, that they yes. use oh, are yes. horrible, like old horrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like you get out of the city to some village, and it's like, ah, you know, and yet, you know, 
that I'm sure that for those who are coming to the you know the, yeah. to pray like that's you know that must have the same emotional re mm -hmm. resonance for mm -hmm. them at that time of day like yeah definitely yeah, yeah. it is you yeah. know <laughs> yeah it's great unlistenable like, too yeah you yeah know. It's kind of noise but it's like oh it's, re it's respectful and this is like part of the traditional yeah. culture <laughs> and I will say also sort of uh, also sort of beautiful in a weird way like mm -hmm. those crazy tinny speakers you know yes. you're just kind of like oh my god this is happening <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> audiophile's nightmare <laughs> yes yes um, okay, let's go. Shall we see what the third yeah, one is? This one I think is taking us. Oh well, we'll go where we go with this. Okay. Donald Trump. Uh oh. Uh -oh. Um, <laughs> this is Mary Aiken on Donald Trump, wow. politics, and the internet. So, okay, still mm -hmm. the internet. So, in Europe, we're fascinated with your election, Hillary and Trump. And everybody that you talk to says, well, how is Trump being so successful? Why on earth are people tolerating sexist, racist, hate speech? And there's a good answer for it. I wrote a piece recently for Time, and I discussed why Trump is having the sort of success that he's having at the moment. And it comes down to one thing. Trump is a troll that has jumped off the internet and into the real world. And the reason that so many people are tolerant of his extreme statements, his name-calling, this horrible, nasty, even sadistic behavior, is because the online environment has normalized this type of behavior. What happens in the cyber world impacts on the real world. What happens in the real world impacts on the cyber world. And this is certainly true in terms of Trump's behavior. It's kind of funny because she ends with the, the rhetorical flourish. She's kind of, she's calling like Trump an immigrant, <laughs> which is great. Cyber migrant. Yeah, yeah. He's a cyber migrant. Um, but yeah, to me, the big takeaway, which I agree with, is that this idea that, you know, behavior, that's sort of online behavior, behavior in digital spaces, um, definitely has an impact with what she's calling the real world. In a way, I would take it a step further. It's like there is no real world anymore. It's like right. there's—it's just—it's a fluid continuum. With at one end, it's chat rooms and spam and online trolls, and at the other land, at the other end, it is like people trying to cross borders due to oppressive regimes and all these things. But it—but it's a—they're constantly intermodulating in ways that are often totally scary, as the example she's using um, when when trolling happens like that. Um, but very compelling argument. I don't know, like, I, like if I reach back historically, like thinking about what she's saying in terms of, you know, trying to teach your child not to bully and mm -hmm. not to be a jerk kind of thing, yeah. right? I mean, this idea that like bad guys always win, mm -hmm. you know, this is mm -hmm. not a new yeah. strain of thought, yep. right? I mean, you can reach back <laughs> into history exactly. and see plenty of examples of bad behavior mm -hmm. resulting in something that looks like success mm -hmm. from a certain angle, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think the internet invented that. Yes. And this idea of like the demagogue, it's like the person who is saying the sort of ridiculous things and, and this, it's like, in a way, 
the critique needs to be systemic. Do you know, it's like if, if someone can say sort of an, an untruth and that will be amplified or reported on as if it were news, it's like, oh man, like it's the journalists who need to be taken to task for that as well because so much of any sort of nationwide issue is, is shaped by the sort of the official organs of discussion around it. That's right, that's right, which of course, you know, there were a couple of things. Like one, there was some commentary out on the internet months back of like, mm -hmm. let's just stop saying his name all the time. Mm -hmm. Like, can we not let him dominate yes. every discussion, yes. good or bad, uh -huh. right? And then, but then separately, there's the question of normalizing his behavior. And I feel mm -hmm. like the mm -hmm. liberal, to whatever extent there is a liberal media, the left-leaning aspect of the media mm -hmm. has been maybe trying or until recently yes. was trying went through this like existential uh -huh. crisis of yep. like let's try to like understand where this is coming from yes right <laughs> and i don't know like i mean what like what's your perspective on that like do you think that the like the media oughtn't to have done that you know what's the line between sort of normalizing mm. and like trying to be open-minded mm -hmm. oh yeah i mean i think I think the media can be taken to task for, for normalizing and like I said, even just reporting on these sort of ridiculous things as it, like and putting it over other, I hate to say actual, but yeah, other things that have more impact on the day-to-day -day life of Americans. Right. So I was like, come on, people. And it, or, and even forgetting Americans, like, like, the, like the, the, our day-to-day -day lives as global citizens, yes, you know, the, yep. just the fact that like mm -hmm. Aleppo is going to be gone exactly. soon, you know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally terrifying. There's so much going on and then, yeah, it's, it's uh, the more, what is it, like the more you're exposed to something, the more you sort of start to like it or gain empathy or, or believe it exists even if it's the, you know, global warming or something like that. Right. Um, yeah, so. and I think this weird thing happens too, right, with villains where like if they stick around long enough, it's mm. like you can heap scorn and contempt on them, but at yeah. some point it's like, yeah, that's the villain, yes. like that guy, you know? And there's yep. this weird grudging mm -hmm. respect or something that emerges. That's yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true. And that's, and, and that's also, of course, it's one of the many downfalls of a two-party system where it's <laughs> right. like, it's, you know, it's, it's, what is it? It's like Coke or Pepsi. It's like there's bound to be, a, you know? Right, um, right. Were you in favor, were you like pro-Bernie when that, if, uh, oh, yeah. if I can, yeah, yeah. you, you I mean, thought he should be president mm -hmm. or you, yeah. Yes, I thought things would have been more. Yeah, I don't know, I wasn't sure. I just, it seemed to me like he, I mean, I, you know, I, I get the criticisms that mm -hmm. exist against Hillary, but mm -hmm. I felt like, Bernie was kind of like, break the banks, break the banks, break the banks, uh -huh. you know, which yeah. I, that's fine, that should happen. Yes, yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, anyway, but. Well, Jace Clayton, that we went in many, many directions. Uh -huh. we, we were vectors going in, in every direction from, from a central point. Um, thank you so much for being on Think Again and talking to me about your book, Uproot. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. And that's it for another episode of Think Again. I pay close attention to the numbers of people that are listening to the podcast, or I should be more specific, we don't actually know that. What we see is who downloaded and or maybe streamed the podcast. We can't tell whether they actually listened or for how long, but there's a lot of you, a lot of people out there listening to this show pretty regularly. And some of them I have had the great pleasure of meeting through Twitter uh, or they went online and they found my website and they emailed me. 
and I've gotten into some really interesting conversations and I've made some new friends that way. Uh, and I even ended up going to a very interesting party out in Los Angeles uh, where I met people from NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab because of this as well. I want to meet more of you. I want to talk to the people who listen to this show regularly and enjoy it. And so my email address, if you'd like to send me an email, is jason at bigthink.com. I'd love to hear what you like about the show or a story from your life about how something that we talked about intersects with your own life. And if you, can, if you send it to me as an MP3 file or a WAV file, any sound file, I will try to gather the best of those, the most interesting of those, and put them into an upcoming episode. More importantly though, I'd just really like to hear from you and talk to you. We are gonna be back next week with another highly interesting conversation, and I hope to have you back for that.